Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O. Book 9, Part 2 Of The Republic by Plato this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The second proof is derived from the nature of the soul, seeing that the individual soul, like the state, has been divided by us into three principles. The division may, I think, furnish a new demonstration of what nature. It seems to me that to these three principles, three pleasures correspond, also three desires and governing powers how do you mean he said there is one principle with which as we were saying a man learns another with which he is angry the third having many forms has no special name but is denoted by the general term appetitive from the extraordinary strength and vehemence of the desires of eating and drinking and the other sensual appetites which are the main elements of it also money-loving because such desires are generally satisfied by the help of money. That is true, he said. If I were to say that the loves and pleasures of this third part were concerned with gain, we should then be able to fall back on a single notion, and might truly and intelligibly describe this part of the soul as loving gain or money. I agree with you. Again, is not the passionate element wholly set on ruling and conquering and getting fame? True. Suppose we call it the contentious or ambitious, would the term be suitable? Extremely suitable. On the other hand, every one sees that the principle of knowledge is wholly directed to the truth, and cares less than either of the others for gain or fame. Far less. Lover of wisdom, lover of knowledge, are titles which we may fitly apply to that part of the soul? Certainly. One principle prevails in the souls of one class of men, another in others, as may happen. Yes. Then we may begin by assuming that there are three classes of men, lovers of wisdom, lovers of honour, lovers of gain. Exactly. And there are three kinds of pleasure, which are their several objects. Very true. Now, if you examine the three classes of men, and ask of them in turn which of their lives is pleasantest, each will be found praising his own, and depreciating that of others. The money-maker will contrast the vanity of honour or of learning, if they bring no money with the solid advantages of gold and silver. True, he said. And the lover of honour, what will be his opinion? Will he not think that the pleasure of riches is vulgar, while the pleasure of learning, if it brings no distinction, is all smoke and nonsense to him. Very true. And are we to suppose, I said, that the philosopher sets any value on other pleasures in comparison with the pleasure of knowing truth, and in that pursuit abiding, ever learning, not so far indeed from the heaven of pleasure? Does he not call the other pleasures necessary, under the idea that if there are no necessity for them, he would rather not have them? There can be no doubt of that he replied. Since, then, the pleasures of each class and the life of each are in dispute, 
and the question is not which life is more or less honourable, or better or worse, but which is the more pleasant or painless, how shall we know who speaks truly? I cannot myself tell, he said. Well, but what ought to be the criterion? Is any better than experience and wisdom and reason? There cannot be a better, he said. Then, I said, reflect. Of the three individuals, which has the greatest experience of all the pleasures which we enumerated? Has the lover of gain, in learning the nature of essential truth, greater experience of the pleasure of knowledge than the philosopher has of the pleasure of gain? The philosopher, he replied, has greatly the advantage, for he has of necessity always known the taste of the other pleasures from his childhood upwards. But the lover of gain, in all his experience, has not of necessity tasted, or, I should rather say, even had he desired, could hardly have tasted, the sweetness of learning and knowing truth. Then the lover of wisdom has a great advantage over the lover of gain, for he has a double experience? Yes, very great. Again, has he greater experience of the pleasures of honour, or the lover of honour of the pleasures of wisdom? Nay, he said, all three are honoured in proportion as they attain their object, for the rich man and the brave man and the wise man alike have their crowd of admirers, and as they all receive honour, they all have experience of the pleasures of honour. But the delight which is to be found in the knowledge of true being is known to the philosopher only. His experience, then, will enable him to judge better than any one? Far better. And he is the only one who has wisdom as well as experience? Certainly. Further, the very faculty which is the instrument of judgment is not possessed by the covetous or ambitious man, but only by the philosopher. What faculty? Reason, with whom, as we were saying, the decision ought to rest. Yes, and reasoning is peculiarly his instrument? Certainly. If wealth and gain were the criterion, then the praise or blame of the lover of gain would surely be the most trustworthy? Assuredly or if honour or victory or courage in that case the judgment of the ambitious or pugnacious would be the truest clearly but since experience and wisdom and reason are the judges the only interference possible he replied is that pleasures which are approved by the lover of wisdom and reason are the truest and so we arrive at the result that the pleasure of the intelligent part of the soul is the pleasantest of the three and that he of us in whom this is the ruling principle has the pleasantest life unquestionably he said the wise man speaks with authority when he approves of his own life and what does the judge affirm to be the life which is next and the pleasure which is next clearly that of the soldier and lover of honour who is nearer to himself than the money-maker last comes the lover of gain very true he said Twice in succession, then, has the just man overthrown the unjust in this conflict, and now comes the third trial, which is dedicated to Olympian Zeus the Saviour. A sage whispers in my ear that no pleasure except that of the wise is quite true and pure. All others are a shadow only, and surely this will prove the greatest and most decisive of falls. Yes, the greatest. But will you explain yourself? I will work out the subject, and you shall answer my questions. Proceed. 
Say, then, is not pleasure opposed to pain? True. And there is a neutral state which is neither pleasure nor pain? There is. A state which is intermediate, and a sort of repose of the soul about either. That is what you mean? Yes. You remember what people say when they are sick? What do they say? That, after all, nothing is pleasanter than health. But then they never knew this to be the greatest of pleasures until they were ill. Yes, I know, he said. And when persons are suffering from acute pain, you must have heard them say that there is nothing pleasanter than to get rid of their pain? I have. And there are many other cases of suffering in which the mere rest and cessation of pain, and not any positive enjoyment, is extolled by them as the greatest pleasure. Yes, he said. At the time they are pleased and well content to be at rest. Again, when pleasure ceases, that sort of rest or cessation will be painful? Doubtless, he said. Then the intermediate state of rest will be pleasure and will also be pain? So it would seem. But can that which is neither become both? I should say not. And both pleasure and pain are motions of the soul, are they not? Yes. But that which is neither was just now shown to be rest, and not motion, and in a mean between them. Yes. How then can we be right in supposing that the absence of pain is pleasure, or that the absence of pleasure is pain? Impossible. This, then, is an appearance only, and not a reality. That is to say, the rest is pleasure at the moment, and in comparison of what is painful, and painful in comparison of what is pleasant. But all these representations, when tried by the test of true pleasure, are not real, but a sort of imposition. That is the inference. Look at the other class of pleasures which have no antecedent pains, and you will no longer suppose, as you perhaps may at present, that pleasure is only the cessation of pain, or pain of pleasure. What are they? he said, and where shall I find them? There are many of them. Take as an example the pleasures of smell, which are very great and have no antecedent pains. They come in a moment, and when they depart leave no pain behind them. Most true, he said. Let us not, then, be induced to believe that pure pleasure is the cessation of pain, or pain of pleasure. No. Still, the more numerous and violent pleasures which reach the soul through the body are generally of this sort. They are reliefs of pain. That is true. And the anticipations of future pleasures and pains are of a like nature? Yes. Shall I give you an illustration of them? Let me hear. You would allow, I said, that there is in nature an upper and lower and middle region? I should. And if a person were to go from the lower to the middle region, would he not imagine that he is going up? And he who is standing in the middle, and sees whence he has come, would imagine that he is already in the upper region, if he has never seen the true upper world. To be sure, he said. How can he think otherwise? But if he were taken back again, he would imagine— and truly imagine that he was descending. No doubt. All that would arise out of his ignorance of the true upper and middle and lower regions? Yes. Then can you wonder that persons who are inexperienced in the truth, as they have wrong ideas about many other things, should also have wrong ideas about pleasure and pain and the intermediate state, 
so that when they are only being drawn towards the painful, they feel pain and think the pain which they experience to be real, and in like manner, when drawn away from pain to the neutral or intermediate state, they firmly believe that they have reached the goal of satiety and pleasure. They, not knowing pleasure, err in contrasting pain with the absence of pain, which is like contrasting black with grey instead of white. Can you wonder, I say, at this? No, indeed. I should be much more disposed to wonder at the opposite. Look at the matter thus. Hunger, thirst, and the like are inanitions of the bodily state. Yes, and ignorance and folly are inanitions of the soul. True. And food and wisdom are the corresponding satisfactions of either? Certainly. And is the satisfaction derived from that which has less, or from that which has more existence, the truer? Clearly, from that which has more. What classes of things have a greater share of pure existence in your judgment, those of which food and drink and condiments and all kinds of sustenance are examples, or the class which contains true opinion and knowledge and mind and all the different kinds of virtue? Put the question in this way. Which has a more pure being, that which is concerned with the invariable, the immortal, and the true, and is of such a nature, and is found in such natures, or that which is concerned with and found in the variable and mortal, and is itself variable and mortal? Far purer, he replied, is the being of that which is conceived with the invariable. And does the essence of the invariable partake of knowledge in the same degree as of essence? Yes, of knowledge in the same degree. And of truth in the same degree? Yes. And conversely, that which has less of truth will also have less of essence? necessarily. Then, in general, those kinds of things which are in the service of the body have less of truth and essence than those which are in the service of the soul? Far less. And has not the body itself less of truth and essence than the soul? Yes. What is filled with more real existence, and actually has a more real existence, is more really filled than that which is filled with less real existence and is less real? of course. And if there is a pleasure in being filled with that which is according to nature, that which is more really filled with more real being will more really and truly enjoy true pleasure, whereas that which participates in less real being will be less truly and surely satisfied, and will participate in an illusory and less real pleasure? Unquestionably. Those, then, who know not wisdom and virtue, and are always busy with gluttony and sensuality, go down and up again as far as the mean, and in this region they move at random throughout life, but they never pass into the true upper world. Thither they neither look, nor do they ever find their way, neither are they truly filled with true being, nor do they taste a pure and abiding pleasure. Like cattle, with their eyes always looking down and their heads stooping to the earth, that is, to the dining-table, they fatten and feed and breed, and in their excessive love of these delights they kick and butt at one another with horns and hoofs which are made of iron, and they kill one another by reason of their insatiable lust. For they fill themselves with that which is not substantial, and the part of themselves which they fill is also unsubstantial and incontinent. Verily, Socrates, said Glaucon, you describe the life of many like an oracle. 
their pleasures are mixed with pain how can they be otherwise for they were mere shadows and pictures of the true and are coloured by contrast which exaggerates both light and shade and so they implant in the minds of fools insane desires of themselves and they are fought about as tesichorus says that the greeks fought about the shadow of helen at troy in ignorance of the truth something of that sort must inevitably happen and must not the like happen with the spirited or passionate element of the soul will not the passionate man who carries his passion into action be in the like case whether he is envious and ambitious or violent and contentious or angry and discontented if he be seeking to attain honour and victory and the satisfaction of his anger without reason or sense yes he said the same will happen with the spirited element also then may we not confidently assert that the lovers of money and honour when they seek their pleasures under the guidance and in the company of reason and knowledge and pursue after and win the pleasures which wisdom shows them will also have the truest pleasures in the highest degree which is attainable to them inasmuch as they follow truth and they will have the pleasures which are natural to them if that which is best for each one is also most natural to him yes certainly the best is the most natural and when the whole soul follows the philosophical principle and there is no division the several parts are just and do each of them their own business and enjoy severally the best and truest pleasures of which they are capable exactly but when either of the two other principles prevails it fails in attaining its own pleasure and compels the rest to pursue after a pleasure which is a shadow only and which is not their own true and the greater the interval which separates them from philosophy and reason the more strange and elusive will be the pleasure yes and is not that farthest from reason which is at the greatest distance from law and order clearly and the lustful and tyrannical desires are as we saw at the greatest distance yes and the royal and orderly desires are nearest yes then the tyrant will live at the greatest distance from true or natural pleasure and the king at the least certainly but if so the tyrant will live most unpleasantly and the king most pleasantly inevitably would you know the measure of the interval which separates them will you tell me there appear to be three pleasures one genuine and two spurious now the transgression of the tyrant reaches a point beyond the spurious he has run away from the region of law and reason and taken up his abode with certain slave pleasures which are his satellites and the measure of his inferiority can only be expressed in a figure how do you mean i assume i said that the tyrant is in the third place from the oligarch the democrat was in the middle yes and if there is truth in what has preceded he will be wedded to an image of pleasure which is thrice removed as to truth from the pleasure of the oligarch he will and the oligarch is third from the royal since we count as one royal and aristocratical yes he is third then the tyrant is removed from true pleasure by the space of a number which is three times three manifestly the shadow then of tyrannical pleasure determined by the number of length will be a plain figure certainly and if you raise the power and make the plane a solid 
there is no difficulty in seeing how vast is the interval by which the tyrant is parted from the king. Yes, the arithmetician will easily do the sum. Or, if some person begins at the other end, and measures the interval by which the king is parted from the tyrant in truth of pleasure, he will find him, when the multiplication is completed, living seven hundred twenty-nine times more pleasantly, and the tyrant more painfully by this same interval. What a wonderful calculation, and how enormous is the distance which separates the just from the unjust in regard to pleasure and pain! Yet a true calculation, I said, and a number which nearly concerns human life, if human beings are concerned with days and nights and months and years. Yes, he said, human life is certainly concerned with them. Then, if the good and just man be thus superior in pleasure to the evil and unjust, his superiority will be infinitely greater in propriety of life and in beauty and virtue? Immeasurably greater. Well, I said, and now, having arrived at this stage of the argument, we may revert to the words which brought us hither. Was not some one saying that injustice was a gain to the perfectly unjust who was reputed to be just? Yes, that was said. Now, then, having determined the power and quality of justice and injustice, let us have a little conversation with him. What shall we say to him? Let us make an image of the soul, that he may have his own words presented before his eyes. Of what sort? An ideal image of the soul, like the composite creations of ancient mythology, such as the Chimera or Scylla or Cerberus, and there are many others in which two or more different natures are said to grow into one. There are said of having been such unions. Then do you now model the form of a multitudinous many-headed monster, having a ring of heads of all manner of beasts, tame and wild, which he is able to generate and metamorphose at will? You suppose marvellous powers in the artist, but as language is more pliable than wax or any similar substance, let there be such a model as you propose. Suppose now that you make a second form as of a lion, and a third of a man, the second smaller than the first, and the third smaller than the second. That, he said, is an easier task, and I have made them, as you say. And now join them, and let the three grow into one. That has been accomplished. Next, fashion the outside of them into a single image, as of a man, so that he who is not able to look within, and sees only the outer hull, may believe the beast to be a single human creature. I have done so, he said. And now, to him who maintains that it is profitable for the human creature to be unjust, and unprofitable to be just, let us reply that, if he be right, it is profitable for this creature to feast the multitudinous monster, and strengthen the lion, and the lion-like qualities, but to starve and weaken the man, who is consequently liable to be dragged about at the mercy of either or the other two, and he is not to attempt to familiarize or harmonize them with one another. He ought rather to suffer them to fight and bite and devour one another. Certainly, he said, that is what the approver of injustice says. To him the supporter of justice makes answer that he should ever so speak and act as to give the man within him in some way or other the most complete mastery over the entire human creature. He should watch over the many-headed monster like a good husbandman, 
fostering and cultivating the gentle qualities, and preventing the wild ones from growing. He should be making the lion heart his ally, and in common care of them all, should be uniting the several parts with one another and with himself. Yes, he said, that is quite what the maintainer of justice says. And so, from every point of view, whether of pleasure, honour, or advantage, the approver of justice is right and speaks the truth, and the disapprover is wrong and false and ignorant. Yes, from every point of view. Come now, and let us gently reason with the unjust, who is not intentionally in error. Sweet sir, we will say to him, what think you of things esteemed noble and ignoble? Is not the noble that which subjects the beast to the man, or rather to the god in man, and the ignoble that which subjects the man to the beast? He can hardly avoid saying yes, can he now? Not if he has any regard for my opinion. But if he agree so far, we may ask him to answer another question. Then how would a man profit if he received gold and silver on the condition that he was to enslave the noblest part of him to the worst? Who can imagine that a man who sold his son or daughter into slavery for money, especially if he sold them into the hands of fierce and evil men, would be the gainer, however large might be the sum which he received? And will any one say that he is not a miserable caitiff, who remorselessly sells his own divine being to that which is most godless and detestable? Eriphyle took the necklace of the price of her husband's life, but he is taking a bribe in order to compass a worse ruin. Yes, said Glaucon, far worse, I will answer for him. Has not the intemperate been censured of old, because in him the huge multiform monster is allowed to be too much at large? Clearly. And men are blamed for pride and bad temper, when the lion and serpent element in them disproportionately grows and gains strength? Yes. And luxury and softness are blamed, because they relax and weaken this same creature, and make a coward of him. Very true. And is not a man reproached for flattery and meanness, who subordinates the spirited animal to the unruly monster, and for the sake of money, of which he can never have enough, habituates him in the days of his youth to be trampled in the mire, and from being a lion to becoming a monkey? True, he said. And why are mean employments and manual arts a reproach? only because they imply a natural weakness of the higher principle. The individual is unable to control the creatures within him, but has to court them, and his great study is how to flatter them. Such appears to be the reason. And therefore, being desirous of placing him under a rule like that of the best, we say that he ought to be the servant of the best, in whom the divine rules, not, as Thrasymachus supposed, to the injury of the servant, but because every one had better be ruled by divine wisdom dwelling within him, or, if this be impossible, then by an external authority, in order that we may be all, as far as possible, under the same government, friends and equals. True, he said. And this is clearly seen to be the intention of the law, which is the ally of the whole city, and is seen also in the authority which we exercise over children, and the refusal to let them be free until we have established in them a principle analogous to the constitution of a state, and, by cultivation of this higher element, have set up in their hearts a guardian and ruler like our own. And when this is done, they may go their ways. Yes, 
he said, the purpose of the law is manifest. From what point of view, then, and on what ground can we say that a man is profited by injustice or intemperance or other baseness, which will make him a worse man, even though he acquire money or power by his wickedness? From no point of view at all. What shall he profit if his injustice be undetected and unpunished? He who is undetected only gets worse, whereas he who is detected and punished has the brutal part of his nature silenced and humanized, the gentler element in him is liberated, and his whole soul is perfected and ennobled by the acquirement of justice and temperance and wisdom, more than the body ever is by receiving gifts of beauty, strength, and health, in proportion as the soul is more honorable than the body. Certainly, he said. To this nobler purpose the man of understanding will devote the energies of his life, and in the first place he will honor studies which impress these qualities on his soul, and will disregard others, clearly, he said. In the next place he will regulate his bodily habit and training, and so far will he be from yielding to brutal and irrational pleasures that he will regard even health as quite a secondary matter. His first object will be not that he may be fair or strong or well, unless he is likely thereby to gain temperance, but he will always desire so to attemper the body as to preserve the harmony of the soul. Certainly he will, if he has true music in him. And in the acquisition of wealth there is a principle of order and harmony which he will also observe. He will not allow himself to be dazzled by the foolish applause of the world, and heap up riches to his own infinite harm? Certainly not, he said. He will look at the city which is within him, and take heed that no disorder occur in it, such as might arise either from superfluity or from want. And upon this principle he will regulate his property, and gain or spend according to his means. Very true. And for the same reason he will gladly accept and enjoy such honors as he deems likely to make him a better man. But those, whether private or public, which are likely to disorder his life, he will avoid. Then, if that is his motive, he will not be a statesman. By the dog of Egypt he will. In the city which is his own he certainly will, though in the land of his birth perhaps not, unless he have a divine call. I understand. You mean that he will be a ruler in the city of which we are the founders, and which exists in idea only for I do not believe that there is such an one anywhere on earth. In heaven, I replied, there is laid up a pattern of it, methinks, which he who desires may behold, and beholding may set his own house in order. But whether such an one exists, or ever will exist, in fact, is no matter, for he will live after the manner of that city, having nothing to do with any other. I think so, he said. End of Book Nine Book Ten, Part One of the Republic by Plato. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of the many excellences which I perceive in the order of our state, there is none which upon reflection pleases me better than the rule about poetry. To what do you refer? To the rejection of imitative poetry, 
which certainly ought not to be received. As I see far more clearly now that the parts of the soul have been distinguished. What do you mean? Speaking in confidence, for I should not like to have my words repeated to the tragedians and the rest of the imitative tribe, but I do not mind saying to you that all poetical imitations are ruinous to the understanding of the hearers, and that the knowledge of their true nature is the only antidote to them. Explain the purport of your remark. Well, I will tell you, although I have always from my earliest youth had an awe and love of Homer, which even now makes the words falter on my lips, for he is the great captain and teacher of the whole of that charming tragic company. But a man is not to be reverenced more than the truth, and therefore I will speak out. Very good, he said. Listen to me, then, or rather, answer me. Put your question. Can you tell me what imitation is? For I really do not know. A likely thing, then, that I should know. Why not? For a duller eye may often see a thing sooner than the keener. Very true he said, but in your presence, even if I had any faint notion, I could not muster courage to utter it. Will you inquire yourself? Well, then, shall we begin the inquiry in our usual manner? Whenever a number of individuals have a common name, we assume them to have also a corresponding idea or form. Do you understand me? I do. Let us take any common instance— there are beds and tables in the world, plenty of them, are there not? Yes, but there are only two ideas or forms of them, one the idea of a bed, the other of a table. True. And the maker of either of them makes a bed, or he makes a table for our use, in accordance with the idea. That is our way of speaking in this and similar instances. But no artificer makes the ideas themselves. How could he? impossible. And there is another artist. I should like to know what you would say of him. Who is he? One who is the maker of all the works of all other workmen. What an extraordinary man! Wait a little, and there will be more reason for your saying so. For this is he who is able to make not only vessels of every kind, but plants and animals, himself and all other things, the earth and heaven, and the things which are in heaven and under the earth. He makes the gods also. He must be a wizard, and no mistake. Oh, you are incredulous, are you? Do you mean that there is no such maker or creator, or that in one sense there might be a maker of all these things, but in another not? Do you see that there is a way in which you can make them all yourself? What way? An easy way enough, or rather, there are many ways in which the feat might be quickly and easily accomplished, none quicker than that of turning a mirror round and round. You would soon enough make the sun and the heavens, and the earth and yourself, and other animals and plants, and all the other things of which we were just now speaking, in the mirror. Yes, he said, but they would be appearances only. Very good, I said. You are coming to the point now and the painter, too, is, as I conceive, just another, a creator of appearances, is he not? Of course. But then I suppose you will say that what he creates is untrue, and yet there is a sense in which the painter also creates a bed? 
"'Yes,' he said, "'but not a real bed. And what of the maker of the bed? Were you not saying that he too makes, not the idea, which according to our view is the essence of the bed, but only a particular bed?' "'Yes, I did.' then if he does not make that which exists he cannot make true existence but only some semblance of existence and if any one were to say that the work of the maker of the bed or any other workman has real existence he could hardly be supposed to be speaking the truth at any rate he replied philosophers would say that he was not speaking the truth no wonder then that his work too is an indistinct expression of truth no wonder suppose now that by the light of the examples just offered we inquire who this imitator is if you please well then here are three beds one existing in nature which is made by god as i think we may say for no one else can be the maker no there is another which is the work of the carpenter yes and the work of a painter is a third yes beds then are of three kinds and there are three artists who superintend them god the maker of the bed and the painter yes there are three of them god whether from choice or from necessity made one bed in nature and one only two or more such ideal beds neither ever have been nor ever will be made by god why is that because even if he had made but two a third would still appear behind them which both of them would have for their idea and that would be the ideal bed and not the two others very true he said god knew this and he desired to be the real maker of a real bed not a particular maker of a particular bed and therefore he created a bed which is essentially and by nature one only so we believe shall we then speak of him as the natural author or maker of the bed yes he replied inasmuch as by the natural process of creation he is the author of this and of all other things and what shall we say of the carpenter is he not also the maker of the bed yes but would you call the painter a creator and maker certainly not yet if he is not the maker what is he in relation to the bed i think he said that we may fairly designate him as the imitator of that which the others make good i said then you call him who is third in the descent from nature an imitator well, certainly he said and the tragic poet is an imitator and therefore like all other imitators he is thrice removed from the king and from the truth that appears to be so then about the imitator we are agreed and what about the painter i would like to know whether he may be thought to imitate that which originally exists in nature or only the creations of artists the latter as they are or as they appear you still have to determine this what do you mean i mean that you may look at a bed from different points of view obliquely or directly or from any other point of view and the bed will appear different but there is no difference in reality and the same of all things yes he said the difference is only apparent now 
let me ask you another question. Which is the art of painting designed to be, an imitation of things as they are, or as they appear, of appearance or of reality? Of appearance. Then the imitator, I said, is a long way off the truth, and can do all things because he lightly touches on a small part of them, and that part an image. For example, a painter will paint a cobbler, carpenter, or any other artist, though he knows nothing of their arts, and, if he is a good artist, he may deceive children or simple persons when he shows them his picture of a carpenter from a distance, and they will fancy that they are looking at a real carpenter. Certainly. And whenever any one informs us that he has found a man who knows all the arts and all things else that anybody knows, and every single thing with a higher degree of accuracy than any other man, whoever tells us this, I think that we can only imagine him to be a simple creature who is likely to have been deceived by some wizard or actor whom he met and whom he thought all-knowing because he himself was unable to analyze the nature of knowledge and ignorance and imitation. Most true. And so, when we hear persons saying that the tragedians and Homer, who is at their head, know all the arts and all things human, virtue as well as vice, and divine things too, for that the good poet cannot compose well unless he knows his subject, and that he who has not this knowledge can never be a poet, we ought to consider whether here also there may not be a similar illusion. Perhaps they may have come across imitators and been deceived by them. They may not have remembered when they saw their works that these were but imitations thrice removed from the truth, and could easily be made without any knowledge of the truth, because they are appearances only, and not realities. Or, after all, they may be in the right, and poets do really know the things about which they seem to the many to speak so well. The question, he said, should by all means be considered. Now, do you suppose that if a person were able to make the original as well as the image, he would seriously devote himself to the image-making branch? Would he allow imitation to be the ruling principle of his life, as if he had nothing higher in him? I should say not. The real artist, who knew what he was imitating, would be interested in realities, and not in imitations, and would desire to leave as memorials of himself works many and fair, and instead of being author of encomiums, he would prefer to be the theme of them. Yes, he said, that would be to him a source of much greater honour and profit. Then, I said, we must put a question to Homer, not about medicine or any of the arts to which his poems only incidentally refer. We are not going to ask him, or any other poet, whether he has cured patients like Asclepius, or left behind him a school of medicine such as Asclepiads were, or whether he only talks about medicine and other arts at second hand. But we have a right to know respecting military tactics, politics, education, which are the chiefest and noblest subjects of his poems, and we may fairly ask him about them. Friend Homer, then we say to him, if you are only in the second remove from truth in what you say of virtue, and not in the third, not an image-maker or imitator, 
and if you are able to discern what pursuits make men better or worse in private or public life tell us what state was ever better governed by your help the good order of lacedaemon is due to lycurgus and many other cities great and small have been similarly benefited by others but who says that you have been a good legislator to them and have done them any good italy and sicily boast of carondas and there is salon who is renowned among us but what city has anything to say about you is there any city which he might name i think not said glaucon not even the homerids themselves pretend that he was a legislator well but is there any war on record which was carried on successfully by him or aided by his counsels when he was alive there is not or is there any invention of his applicable to the arts or to human life such as Thales the Milesian, or Anacarsus the Scythian, and other ingenious men have conceived, which is attributed to him. There is absolutely nothing of the kind. But if Homer never did any public service, was he privately a guide or teacher of any? Had he, in his lifetime, friends who loved to associate with him, and who handed down to posterity an Homeric way of life, such as was established by pythagoras who was so greatly beloved for his wisdom and whose followers are to this day quite celebrated for the order which was named after him nothing of the kind is recorded of him for surely socrates creophilus the companion of homer that child of flesh whose name always makes us laugh might be more justly ridiculed for his stupidity if as is said homer was greatly neglected by him and others in his own day when he was alive yes i replied that is the tradition but can you imagine glaucon that if homer had really been able to educate and improve mankind if he had possessed knowledge and not been a mere imitator can you imagine i say that he would not have had many followers and been honoured and loved by them protagoras of abdera and prodicus of Sios, and a host of others have only to whisper to their contemporaries you will never be able to manage either your own house or your own state until you appoint us to be your ministers of education and this ingenious device of theirs has such an effect in making men love them that their companions all but carry them about on their shoulders and is it conceivable that the contemporaries of homer or again of Hesiod, would have allowed either of them to go about as rhapsodists if they had really been able to make mankind virtuous. Would they not have been as unwilling to part with them as with gold, and have compelled them to stay at home with them? Or if the master would not stay, then the disciples would have followed him about everywhere until they got education enough. Yes, Socrates, that I think is quite true then must we not infer that all these poetical individuals beginning with homer are only imitators they copy images of virtue and the like but the truth they never reach the poet is like a painter who as we have already observed will make a likeness of a cobbler though he understands nothing of cobbling and his picture is good enough for those who know no more than he does and judge only by colours and figures quite so in like manner the poet with his words and phrases may be said to lay on the colours of the several arts 
himself understanding their nature only enough to imitate them and other people who are as ignorant as he is and judge only from his words imagine that if he speaks of cobbling or of military tactics or of anything else in metre and harmony and rhythm he speaks very well such is the sweet influence which melody and rhythm by nature have and i think that you must have observed again and again what a poor appearance the tales of poets make when stripped of the colours which music puts upon them and recited in simple prose yes he said they are like faces which were never really beautiful but only blooming and now the bloom of youth has passed away from them exactly here is another point the imitator or maker of the image knows nothing of true existence he knows appearances only am i not right yes then let us have a clear understanding and not be satisfied with half an explanation proceed of the painter we saw that he will paint reins and he will paint a bit yes and the worker in leather and brass will make them certainly but does the painter know the right form of the bit and reins nay hardly even the workers in brass and leather who make them only the horseman who knows how to use them he knows their right form most true and may we not say the same of all things what that there are three arts which are concerned with all things one which uses another which makes a third which imitates them yes and the excellence or beauty or truth of every structure animate or inanimate and every action of man is relative to the use for which nature or the artist has intended them true then the user of them must have the greatest experience of them and he must indicate to the maker the good or bad qualities which develop themselves in use for example the flute-player will tell the flute-maker which of his flutes is satisfactory to the performer he will tell him how he ought to make them and the other will attend to his instructions of course the one knows and therefore speaks with authority about the goodness and badness of flutes while the other confiding in him will do what he is told by him true the instrument is the same but about the excellence or badness of it the maker will only attain to a correct belief and this he will gain from him who knows by talking to him and being compelled to hear what he has to say whereas the user will have knowledge true but will the imitator have either will he know from use whether or no his drawing is correct or beautiful or will he have right opinion from being compelled to associate with another who knows and gives him instructions about what he should draw neither then he will no more have true opinion than he will have knowledge about the goodness or badness of his imitations i suppose not the imitative artist will be in a brilliant state of intelligence about his own creations nay very much the reverse and still he will go on imitating without knowing what makes a thing good or bad and may be expected therefore to imitate only that which appears to be good to the ignorant multitude just so thus far then we are pretty well agreed that the imitator has no knowledge worth mentioning of what he imitates imitation is only a kind of play or sport and the tragic poets whether they write in iambic or in heroic verse 
are imitators in the highest degree? Very true. And now tell me, I conjure you, has not imitation been shown by us to be concerned with that which is thrice removed from the truth? Certainly. And what is the faculty in man to which imitation is addressed? Uh, what do you mean? I will explain. The body which is large when seen near appears small when seen at a distance. True. And the same object appears straight when looked at out of the water and crooked when in the water and the concave becomes convex, owing to the illusion about colours to which the sight is liable. Thus every sort of confusion is revealed within us, and this is that weakness of the human mind, on which the art of conjuring and of deceiving by light and shadow and other ingenious devices imposes, having an effect upon us like magic. True and the arts of measuring and numbering and weighing come to the rescue of the human understanding. There is the beauty of them, and the apparent greater or less or more or heavier no longer have the mastery over us, but give way before calculation and measure and weight. Most true. And this, surely, must be the work of the calculating and rational principle in the soul. To be sure and when this principle measures and certifies that some things are equal and that some are greater or less than others, there occurs an apparent contradiction. True. But were we not saying that such a contradiction is impossible, the same faculty cannot have contrary opinions at the same time about the same thing? Very true. Then that part of the soul which has an opinion contrary to measure is not the same with that which has an opinion in accordance with measure? True. And the better part of the soul is likely to be that which trusts to measure and calculation? Certainly. And that which is opposed to them is one of the inferior principles of the soul? No doubt. This was the conclusion at which I was seeking to arrive when I said that painting or drawing and imitation in general, when doing their own proper work, are far removed from truth, and the companions and friends and associates of a principle within us which is equally removed from reason, and that they have no true or healthy aim. Exactly. The imitative art is an inferior who marries an inferior, and has inferior offspring. Very true. And is this confined to the sight only, or does it extend to the hearing also, relating in fact to what we term poetry? Probably the same would be true of poetry. Do not rely, I said, on a probability derived from the analogy of painting. But let us examine further, and see whether the faculty with which poetical imitation is concerned is good or bad. By all means. We may state the question thus. Imitation imitates the actions of men, whether voluntary or involuntary, on which, as they imagine, a good or bad result has ensued, and they rejoice or sorrow accordingly. Is there anything more? No, there is nothing else. But in all this variety of circumstances is the man at unity with himself, or rather, as in the instance of sight there was confusion and opposition in his opinions about the same things, so here also is there not strife and inconsistency in his life, though I need hardly raise the question again. 
for I remember that all this has been already admitted, and the soul has been acknowledged by us to be full of these and ten thousand similar oppositions occurring at the same moment. And we were right, he said. Yes, I said, thus far we were right. But there was an omission which must now be supplied. What was the omission? Were we not saying that a good man, who has the misfortune to lose his son, or anything else which is most dear to him, will bear the loss with more equanimity than another? Yes. But will he have no sorrow, or shall we say that, although he cannot help sorrowing, he will moderate his sorrow? The latter, he said, is the truer statement. Tell me, will he be more likely to struggle and hold out against his sorrow when he is seen by his equals, or when he is alone? It will make a great difference whether he is seen or not. When he is by himself he will not mind saying or doing many things which he would be ashamed of any one hearing or seeing him do. True. There is a principle of law and reason in him which bids him resist, as well as a feeling of his misfortune which is forcing him to indulge his sorrow. True. But when a man is drawn in two opposite directions, to and from the same object, this, as we affirm, necessarily implies two distinct principles in him. Certainly. One of them is ready to follow the guidance of the law. How do you mean? The law would say that to be patient under suffering is best, and that we should not give way to impatience, as there is no knowing whether such things are good or evil, and nothing is gained by impatience. Also, because no human thing is of serious importance, and grief stands in the way of that which at that moment is most required. What is most required? he asked. That we should take counsel about what has happened and when the dice have been thrown, order our affairs in the way which reason deems best, not, like children who have had a fall, keeping hold of the part struck, and wasting time in setting up a howl, but always accustoming the soul forthwith to apply a remedy, raising up that which is sickly and fallen, banishing the cry of sorrow by the healing art. Yes, he said, that is the true way of meeting the attacks of fortune. Yes, I said, and the higher principle is ready to follow this suggestion of reason? Clearly. And the other principle, which inclines us to recollection of our troubles and to lamentation, and can never have enough of them, we may call irrational, useless, and cowardly? Indeed we may. And does not the latter, I mean the rebellious principle, furnish a great variety of materials for imitation, whereas the wise and calm temperament being always nearly equable, is not easy to imitate, or to appreciate when imitated, especially at a public festival when a promiscuous crowd is assembled in a theatre, for the feeling represented is one to which they are strangers. Certainly. Then the imitative poet who aims at being popular is not by nature made, nor is his art intended, to please or to affect a rational principle in the soul but he will prefer the passionate and fitful temper, which is easily imitated. Clearly. And now we may fairly take him and place him by the side of the painter, for he is like him in two ways. First, inasmuch as his creations have an inferior degree of truth, 
in this i say he is like him and he is also like him in being concerned with an inferior part of the soul and therefore we shall be right in refusing to admit him into a well-ordered state because he awakens and nourishes and strengthens the feelings and impairs the reason as in a city when the evil are permitted to have authority and the good are put out of the way so in the soul of man as we maintain the imitative poet implants an evil constitution for he indulges the irrational nature which has no discernment of greater and less but thinks the same thing at one time great and another small he is a manufacturer of images and is very far removed from the truth exactly but we have not yet brought forward the heaviest count in our accusation the power which poetry has of harming even the good and there are very few who are not harmed is surely an awful thing yes certainly if the effect is what you say hear and judge the best of us as i conceive when we listen to a passage of homer or one of the tragedians in which he represents some pitiful hero who is drawling out his sorrows in a long oration or weeping or smiting his breast the best of us you know delight in giving way to sympathy and are in raptures at the excellence of the poet who stirs our feelings most yes of course i know but when any sorrow of our own happens to us then you may observe that we pride ourselves on the opposite quality we would fain be quiet and patient this is the manly part and the other which delighted us in the recitation is now deemed to be the part of a woman very true he said now can we be right in praising and admiring another who is doing that which any one of us would abominate and be ashamed of in his own person no he said that is certainly not reasonable nay i said quite reasonable from one point of view what point of view if you consider i said that when in misfortune we feel a natural hunger and desire to relieve our sorrow by weeping and lamentation and that this feeling which is kept under control in our own calamities is satisfied and delighted by the poets the better nature in each of us not having been sufficiently trained by reason or habit allows the sympathetic element to break loose because the sorrow is another's and the spectator fancies that there can be no disgrace to himself in praising and pitying any one who comes telling him what a good man he is and making a fuss about his troubles he thinks that the pleasure is a gain and why should he be supercilious and lose this and the poem too few persons ever reflect as i should imagine that from the evil of other men something of evil is communicated to themselves and so the feeling of sorrow which has gathered strength at the sight of the misfortunes of others is with difficulty repressed in our own how very true and does not the same hold also of the ridiculous there are jests which you would be ashamed to make yourself and yet on the comic stage or indeed in private when you hear them you are greatly amused by them and are not at all disgusted at their unseemliness the case of pity is repeated there is a principle in human nature which is disposed to raise a laugh and this which you once restrained by reason because you were afraid of being thought a buffoon 
is now let out again, and having stimulated the risable faculty at the theatre, you are betrayed unconsciously to yourself into playing the comic poet at home. Quite true, he said. And the same may be said of lust and anger and all the other affections, of desire and pain and pleasure, which are held to be inseparable from every action. In all of them, poetry feeds and waters the passions instead of drying them up. She lets them rule, although they ought to be controlled, if mankind are ever to increase in happiness and virtue. I cannot deny it. Therefore, Glaucon, I said, whenever you meet with any of the eulogists of Homer declaring that he has been the educator of Hellas, and that he is profitable for education and for the ordering of human things, and that you should take him up again and again and get to know him and regulate your whole life according to him, we may love and honour those who say these things. They are excellent people as far as their lights extend, and we are ready to acknowledge that Homer is the greatest of poets and first of tragedy writers. But we must remain firm in our conviction that hymns to the gods and praises of famous men are the only poetry which ought to be admitted into our state. For if you go beyond this, and allow the honeyed muse to enter, either in epic or lyric verse, not law and the reason of mankind, which by common consent have ever been deemed best, but pleasure and pain will be the rulers in our state. That is most true, he said. And now, since we have reverted to the subject of poetry, let this our defence serve to show the reasonableness of our former judgment in sending away out of our state an art having the tendencies which we have described, for reason constrained us. But that she may not impute to us any harshness or want of politeness, let us tell her that there is an ancient quarrel between philosophy and poetry, of which there are many proofs, such as the saying of the yelping hound howling at her lord, or of one mighty in the vain talk of fools, and the mob of sages circumventing Zeus, and the subtle thinkers who are beggars after all, and there are innumerable other signs of ancient enmity between them. Notwithstanding this, let us assure our sweet friend and the sister arts of imitation that if she will only prove her title to exist in a well-ordered state, we shall be delighted to receive her. We are very conscious of her charms, but we may not on that account betray the truth. I dare say, Glaucon, that you are as much charmed by her as I am, especially when she appears in Homer. Yes, indeed, I am greatly charmed. Shall I propose, then, that she be allowed to return from exile, but upon this condition only? that she make a defence of herself in lyrical or some other metre. Certainly, and we may further grant to those of her defenders who are lovers of poetry, and yet not poets, the permission to speak in prose on her behalf. Let them show not only that she is pleasant, but also useful to states and to human life, and we will listen in a kindly spirit. For if this can be proved, we shall surely be the gainers." I mean, if there is a use in poetry as well as delight. Certainly, he said, we shall be the gainers. If her defence fails, then, my dear friend, 
like other persons who are enamoured of something but put a restraint upon themselves when they think their desires are opposed to their interests so too must we after the manner of lovers give her up though not without a struggle we too are inspired by that love of poetry which the education of noble states has implanted in us and therefore we would have her appear at her best and truest but so long as she is unable to make good her defence this argument of ours shall be a charm to us which we will repeat to ourselves while we listen to her strains that we may not fall away into the childish love of her which captivates the many at all events we are well aware that poetry being such as we have described is not to be regarded seriously as attaining to the truth and he who listens to her fearing for the safety of the city which is within him should be on his guard against her seductions and make our words his law yes he said i quite agree with you yes i said my dear glaucon for great is the issue at stake greater than appears whether a man is to be good or bad and what will any one be profited if under the influence of honour or money or power i or under the excitement of poetry he neglect justice and virtue yes he said i have been convinced by the argument as i believe that any one else would have been and yet no mention has been made of the greatest prizes and rewards which await virtue what are there any greater still if there are they must be of inconceivable greatness why i said what was ever great in a short time the whole period of threescore years and ten is surely but a little thing in comparison with eternity say rather nothing he replied and should an immortal being seriously think of this little space rather than of the whole of the whole certainly but why do you ask are you not aware i said that the soul of man is immortal and imperishable he looked at me in astonishment and said no by heaven and are you really prepared to maintain this yes i said i ought to be and you too there is no difficulty in proving it i see a great difficulty but i should like to hear you state this argument of which you make so light listen then i am attending end of book ten part one Book Ten, Part Two of the Republic, by Plato. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. There is a thing which you call good, and another which you call evil. Yes, he replied. Would you agree with me in thinking that the corrupting and destroying element is the evil, and the saving and improving element the good? Yes and you admit that everything has a good and also an evil as ophthalmia is the evil of the eyes and disease of the whole body as mildew is of corn and rot of timber or rust of copper and iron in everything or in almost everything there is an inherent evil and disease yes he said and anything which is infected by any of these evils is made evil and at last wholly dissolves and dies true the vice and evil which is inherent in each is the destruction of each 
and if this does not destroy them, there is nothing else that will, for good certainly will not destroy them, nor again that which is neither good nor evil. Certainly not. If, then, we find any nature which, having this inherent corruption, cannot be dissolved or destroyed, we may be certain that of such a nature there is no destruction. That may be assumed. Well, I said, and is there no evil which corrupts the soul? Oh, yes, he said, there are all the evils which we were just now passing in review, unrighteousness, intemperance, cowardice, ignorance. But does any of these dissolve or destroy her, and here do not let us fall into the error of supposing that the unjust and foolish man, when he is detected, perishes through his own injustice, which is an evil of the soul? Take the analogy of the body. The evil of the body is a disease which wastes and reduces and annihilates the body, and all the things of which we were just now speaking come to annihilation through their own corruption attaching to them, and inhering in them, and so destroying them. Is not this true? Yes. Consider the soul in like manner. Does the injustice or other evil which exists in the soul waste and consume her? Do they, by attaching to the soul and inhering in her, at last bring her to death, and so separate her from the body? Certainly not. And yet, I said, it is unreasonable to suppose that anything can perish from without through affection of external evil, which could not be destroyed from within by a corruption of its own. It is, he replied. Consider, I said, Glaucon, that even the badness of food, whether staleness, decomposition, or any other bad quality, when confined to the actual food, is not supposed to destroy the body. Although, if the badness of food communicates corruption to the body, then we should say that the body has been destroyed by a corruption of itself, which is disease brought on by this. But that the body, being one thing, can be destroyed by the badness of food, which is another, and which does not engender any natural infection, this we shall absolutely deny. Very true. And on the same principle, unless some bodily evil can produce an evil of the soul, we must not suppose that the soul, which is one thing, can be dissolved by any merely external evil which belongs to another. Yes, he said, there is reason in that. Either, then, let us refute this conclusion, or, while it remains unrefuted, let us never say that fever, or any other disease, or the knife put to the throat, or even the cutting up of the whole body into the minutest pieces, can destroy the soul, until she herself is proved to become more unholy or unrighteous in consequence of these things being done to the body, but that the soul, or anything else, if not destroyed by an internal evil, can be destroyed by an external evil, is not to be affirmed by any man. And surely, he replied, no one will ever prove that the souls of men become more unjust in consequence of death. But if some one who would rather not admit the immortality of the soul boldly denies this, and says that the dying do really become more evil and unrighteous, then, if the speaker is right, I suppose that injustice, like disease, must be assumed to be fatal to the unjust, and that those who take this disorder die by the natural inherent power of destruction which evil has, and which kills them sooner or later but in quite another way from that in which, at present, the wicked receive death at the hands of others as the penalty of their deeds. Nay, 
he said, in that case, injustice, if fatal to the unjust, will not be so very terrible to him, for he will be delivered from evil. But I rather suspect the opposite to be the truth, and that injustice, which, if it have the power, will murder others, keeps the murderer alive, ay, and well awake, too. So far removed is her dwelling-place from being a house of death. True, I said if the inherent natural vice or evil of the soul is unable to kill or destroy her, hardly will that which is appointed to be the destruction of some other body destroy a soul or anything else except that of which it was appointed to be the destruction. Yes, that can hardly be. But the soul which cannot be destroyed by an evil, whether inherent or external, must exist forever, and if existing forever must be immortal? Certainly. That is the conclusion, I said, and, if a true conclusion, then the souls must always be the same, for if none be destroyed, they will not diminish in number, neither will they increase, for the increase of the immortal natures must come from something mortal, and all things would thus end in immortality. Very true. But this we cannot believe, reason will not allow us, any more than we can believe the soul, in her truest nature, to be full of variety and difference and dissimilarity. What do you mean? he said. The soul, I said, being, as is now proven, immortal, must be the fairest of compositions, and cannot be compounded of many elements. Certainly not. Her immortality is demonstrated by the previous argument, and there are many other proofs, but to see her as she really is, not as we now behold her, marred by communion with the body and other miseries, you must contemplate her with the eye of reason in her original purity, and then her beauty will be revealed, and justice and injustice, and all the things which we have described will be manifested more clearly. Thus far we have spoken the truth concerning her as she appears at present, but we must remember also that we have seen her only in a condition which may be compared to that of the sea-god Glaucus, whose original image can hardly be discerned, because his natural members are broken off and crushed and damaged by the waves in all sorts of ways, and incrustations have grown over them of seaweed and shells and stones, so that he is more like some monster than he is to his own natural form. And the soul which we behold is in a similar condition, disfigured by ten thousand ills. But not there, Glaucon, not there must we look. Where, then? At her love of wisdom. Let us see whom she affects, and what society and converse she seeks in virtue of her near kindred with the immortal and eternal and divine. Also how different she would become if wholly following this superior principle, and borne by a divine impulse out of the ocean in which she now is, and disengaged from the stones and shells and things of earth and rock, which in wild variety spring up around her, because she feeds upon earth, and is overgrown by the good things of this life as they are termed. Then you would see her as she is, and know whether she have one shape only or many, or what her nature is. Of her affections and of the forms which she takes in this present life, I think that we have now said enough. True, he replied. And thus, I said, we have fulfilled the conditions of the argument. We have not introduced the rewards and glories of justice, which, as you were saying, are to be found in Homer and Hesiod, 
but justice in her own nature has been shown to be best for the soul in her own nature let a man do what is just whether he had the ring of gyges or not and even if in addition to the ring of gyges he put on the helmet of hades very true and now glaucon there will be no harm in further enumerating how many and how great are the rewards which justice and other virtues procure to the soul from gods and men both in life and after death certainly not he said will you repay me then what you borrowed in the argument uh, what did i borrow the assumption that the just man should appear unjust and the unjust just for you were of opinion that even if the true state of the case could not possibly escape the eyes of gods and men still this admission ought to be made for the sake of the argument in order that pure justice might be weighed against pure injustice do you remember i should be much to blame if i had forgotten then as the cause is decided i demand on behalf of justice that the estimation in which she is held by gods and men and which we acknowledge to be her due should now be restored to her by us since she has been shown to confer reality and not to deceive those who truly possess her let what has been taken from her be given back that so she may win that palm of appearance which is hers also and which she gives to her own the demand he said is just in the first place i said and this is the first thing which you will have to give back the nature both of the just and unjust is truly known to the gods granted and if they are both known to them one must be the friend and the other the enemy of the gods as we admitted from the beginning true and the friend of the gods may be supposed to receive from them all things at their best excepting only such evil as is the necessary consequence of former sins certainly then this must be our notion of the just man that even when he is in poverty or sickness or in any other seeming misfortune all things will in the end work together for good to him in life and death for the gods have a care of any one whose desire is to become just and to be like god as far as man can attain the divine likeness by the pursuit of virtue yes he said if he is like god he will surely not be neglected by him and of the unjust may not the opposite be supposed certainly such then are the palms of victory which the gods give the just that is my conviction and what do they receive of men look at things as they really are and you will see that the clever unjust are in the case of runners who run well from the starting-place to the goal but not back again from the goal they go off at a great pace but in the end only look foolish slinking away with their ears draggling on their shoulders and without a crown but the true runner comes to the finish and receives the prize and is crowned and this is the way with the just he who endures to the end of every action and occasion of his entire life has a good report and carries off the prize which men have to bestow true and now you must allow me to repeat of the just the blessings which you were attributing to the fortunate unjust i shall say of them what you were saying of the others that as they grow older they become rulers in their own city if they care to be they marry whom they like and give in marriage to whom they will all that you said of the others i now say of these 
and, on the other hand, of the unjust, I say that the greater number, even though they escape in their youth, are found out at last, and look foolish at the end of their course, and when they come to be old and miserable, are flouted alike by stranger and citizen. They are beaten, and then come those things unfit for ears polite, as you truly term them. They will be racked, and have their eyes burned out, as you were saying. And you may suppose that I have repeated the remainder of your tale of horrors. But will you let me assume, without reciting them, that these things are true? Certainly, he said, what do you say is true? These, then, are the prizes and rewards and gifts which are bestowed upon the just by gods and men in this present life, in addition to the other good things which justice of herself provides. Yes, he said, and they are fair and lasting. And yet, I said, all these are as nothing, either in number or greatness, in comparison with those other recompenses which await both just and unjust after death. And you ought to hear them and then both just and unjust will have received from us a full payment of the debt which the argument owes to them. Speak, he said, there are few things which I would more gladly hear. Well, I said, I will tell you a tale, not one of the tales which Odysseus tells to the hero Alcinous, yet this too is a tale of a hero, Ur, the son of Armenius, of Hamphilion by birth. He was slain in battle, and ten days afterwards, when the bodies of the dead were taken up already in a state of corruption, his body was found unaffected by decay, and carried home to be buried. And on the twelfth day, as he was lying on the funeral pyre, he returned to life, and told them what he had seen in the other world. He said that when his soul left the body he went on a journey with a great company and that they came to a mysterious place, at which there were two openings in the earth. They were near together, and over against them were two other openings in the heaven above. In the intermediate space there were judges seated, who commanded the just, after they had given judgment on them, and had bound their sentences in front of them, to ascend by the heavenly way on the right hand, and, in like manner, the unjust were bidden by them to descend by the lower way on the left hand, these also bore the symbols of their deeds, but fastened on their backs. He drew near, and they told him that he was to be the messenger who would carry the report of the other world to men, and they bade him hear and see all that was to be heard and seen in that place. Then he beheld and saw on one side the souls departing at either opening of heaven and earth when sentence had been given on them and at the two other openings other souls, some ascending out of the earth, dusty and worn with travel, some descending out of heaven, clean and bright. And arriving ever and anon, they seemed to have come from a long journey, and they went forth with gladness into the meadow, where they encamped as at a festival. And those who knew one another embraced and conversed, the souls which came from earth curiously inquiring about the things above, and the souls which came from heaven about the things beneath. And they told one another of what had happened by the way, those from below weeping and sorrowing at the remembrance of the things which they had endured and seen in their journey beneath the earth, now the journey lasted a thousand years, while those from above were describing heavenly delights and visions of inconceivable beauty. A story, Glaucon, would take too long to tell, but the sum was this. 
he said that for every wrong which they had done to any one they suffered tenfold or once in a hundred years such being reckoned to be the length of man's life and the penalty being thus paid ten times in a thousand years if for example there were any who had been the cause of many deaths or had betrayed or enslaved cities or armies or been guilty of any other evil behaviour for each and all of their offences they received punishment ten times over and the rewards of beneficence and justice and holiness were in the same proportion i need hardly repeat what he said concerning young children dying almost as soon as they were born of piety and impiety to gods and parents and of murderers there were retributions other and greater far which he described he mentioned that he was present when one of the spirits asked another where is ardias the great now this ardias lived a thousand years before the time of ur he had been the tyrant of some city of pamphylia and had murdered his aged father and his elder brother and was said to have committed many other abominable crimes the answer of the other spirit was he comes not hither and will never come and this said he was one of the dreadful sights which we ourselves witnessed we were at the mouth of the cavern and having completed all our experiences were about to reascend when of a sudden ardias appeared and several others most of whom were tyrants and there were also besides the tyrants private individuals who had been great criminals they were just as they fancied about to return into the upper world but the mouth instead of admitting them gave a roar whenever any of these incurable sinners or some one who had not been sufficiently punished tried to ascend and then wild men of fiery aspect who were standing by and heard the sound seized and carried them off and ardias and others they bound head and foot and hand and threw them down and flayed them with scourges and dragged them along the road at the side carding them on thorns like wool and declaring to the passers-by what were their crimes and that they were being taken away to be cast into hell of all the many terrors which they had endured he said that there was none like the terror which each of them felt at that moment lest they should hear the voice and when there was silence one by one they ascended with exceeding joy these said er were the penalties and retributions and there were blessings as great now when the spirits which were in the meadow had tarried seven days on the eighth they were obliged to proceed on their journey and on the fourth day after he said that they came to a place where they could see from above a line of light straight as a column extending right through the whole heaven and through the earth in colour resembling the rainbow only brighter and purer another day's journey brought them to the place and there in the midst of the light they saw the ends of the chains of heaven let down from above for this light is the belt of heaven and holds together the circle of the universe like the undergirders of a trireme from these ends is extended the spindle of necessity on which all the revolutions turn the shaft and hook of this spindle are made of steel and the whorl is made partly of steel and also partly of other materials now the whorl is in form like the whorl used on earth and the description of it implied that there was one large hollow whorl which is quite scooped out and into this is fitted another lesser one and another and another and four others making eight in all like vessels which fit into one another the whorls show their edges on the upper side and on the lower side all together form one continuous whorl 
This is pierced by the spindle, which is driven home through the centre of the eighth. The first and outermost wall has the rim broadest, and the seven inner walls are narrower, in the following proportions. The sixth is next to the first in size, the fourth next to the sixth, then comes the eighth, the seventh is fifth, the fifth is sixth, the third is seventh, last and eighth comes the second. The largest is spangled, and the seventh is brightest, the eighth coloured by the reflected light of the seventh, the second and fifth are in colour like one another, and yellower than the preceding, the third has the whitest light, the fourth is reddish, the sixth is in whiteness second. Now, the whole spindle has the same motion, but as the whole revolves in one direction, the seven inner circles move slowly in the other, and of those the swiftest is the eighth. Next in swiftness are the seventh, sixth, and fifth, which move together. Third in swiftness appeared to move according to the law of this reversed motion the fourth. The third appeared fourth, and the second fifth. The spindle turns on the knees of necessity, and on the upper surface of each circle is a siren, who goes round with them, hymning a single tone or note. The eight together form one harmony, and round about, at equal intervals, there is another band, three in number, each sitting upon her throne. These are the fates, daughters of necessity, who are clothed in white robes and have chaplets upon their heads, Lachesis and Clotho and Atropos, who accompany with their voices the harmony of the sirens, Lachesis singing of the past, Clotho of the present, Atropos of the future. Clotho, from time to time, assisting with a touch of her right hand the revolution of the outer circle of the whorl or spindle, and Atropos, with her left hand, touching and guiding the inner ones, and Lachesis laying hold of either in turn, first with one hand and then with the other. When Ur and the spirits arrived, their duty was to go on at once to Lachesis. But first of all there came a prophet, who arranged them in order. Then he took from the knees of Lachesis lots and samples of lives, and, having mounted a high pulpit, spoke as follows. Hear the word of Lachesis, the daughter of necessity, mortal souls, behold a new cycle of life and mortality. Your genius will not be allotted to you, but you will choose your genius, and let him who draws the first lot have the first choice, and the life which he chooses shall be his destiny. Virtue is free, and as a man honours or dishonours her, he will have more or less of her. The responsibility is with the chooser. God is justified. When the interpreter had thus spoken, he scattered lots indifferently among them all, and each of them took up the lot which fell near him. All but Er himself, he was not allowed, and each as he took his lot perceived the number which he had obtained. Then the interpreter placed on the ground before them the samples of lives, and there were many more lives than the souls present, and they were of all sorts. There were lives of every animal, and of man in every condition and there were tyrannies among them, some lasting out the tyrant's life, others which broke off in the middle, and came to an end in poverty and exile and beggary. And there were lives of famous men, some who were famous for their form and beauty, as well as for their strength and success in games, or again for their birth and the qualities of their ancestors, and some who were the reverse of famous for the opposite qualities, and of women likewise. There was not, however, any definite character in them, because the soul, when choosing a new life, must of necessity become different. But there was every other quality, and they all mingled with one another, 
and also with elements of wealth and poverty and disease and health, and there were mean states also. And here, my dear Glaucon, is the supreme peril of our human state, and therefore the utmost care should be taken. Let each one of us leave every other kind of knowledge, and seek and follow one thing only, if peradventure he may be able to learn, and may find some one who will make him able to learn and discern between good and evil, and so to choose always and everywhere the better life as he has opportunity. He should consider the bearing of all these things which have been mentioned severally and collectively upon virtue. He should know what the effect of beauty is when combined with poverty or wealth in a particular soul, and what are the good and evil consequences of noble and humble birth, of private and public station, of strength and weakness, of cleverness and dullness, and of all the natural and acquired gifts of the soul, and the operation of them when conjoined. He will then look at the nature of the soul, and from the consideration of all these qualities he will be able to determine which is the better and which is the worse, and so he will choose, giving the name of evil to the life which will make his soul more unjust, and good to the life which will make his soul more just. All else he will disregard, for we have seen and know that this is the best choice both in life and after death. A man must take with him into the world below an adamantine faith in truth and right, that there too he may be undazzled by the desire of wealth or the other allurements of evil, lest, coming upon tyrannies and similar villainies, he do irremediable wrongs to others, and suffer yet worse himself. But let him know how to choose the mean and avoid the extremes on either side as far as possible, not only in this life, but in all that which is to come, for this is the way of happiness. And according to the report of the messenger from the other world, this was what the prophet said at the time. Even for the last comer, if he chooses wisely and will live diligently, there is appointed a happy and not undesirable existence. Let not him who chooses first be careless, and let not the last despair. And when he had spoken, he who had the first choice came forward and in a moment chose the greatest tyranny. His mind having been darkened by folly and sensuality, he had not thought out the whole matter before he chose, and did not at first sight perceive that he was fated, among other evils, to devour his own children. But when he had time to reflect, and saw what was in the lot, he began to beat his breast and lament over his choice, forgetting the proclamation of the prophet. For, instead of throwing the blame of his misfortune on himself, he accused chance and the gods and everything rather than himself. Now he was one of those who came from heaven, and in a former life had dwelt in a well-ordered state, but his virtue was a matter of habit only, and he had no philosophy. And it was true of others who were similarly overtaken that the greater number of them came from heaven, and therefore they had never been schooled by trial, whereas the pilgrims who came from earth having themselves suffered and seen others suffer, were not in a hurry to choose, and owing to this inexperience of theirs, and also because the lot was a chance, many of the souls exchanged a good destiny for an evil, or an evil for a good. For if a man had always on his arrival in this world dedicated himself from the first to sound philosophy, and had been moderately fortunate in the number of the lot, he might, as the messenger reported, be happy here and also his journey to another life and return to this 
instead of being rough and underground, would be smooth and heavenly. Most curious, he said, was the spectacle, sad and laughable and strange, for the choice of the souls was in most cases based on their experience of a previous life. There he saw the soul which had once been Orpheus, choosing the life of a swan out of enmity to the race of women, hating to be born of a woman because they had been his murderers. He beheld also the soul of Tamiris choosing the life of a nightingale. Birds, on the other hand, like the swan and other musicians, wanting to be men. The soul which obtained the twentieth lot chose the life of a lion, and this was the soul of Ajax, the son of Telamon, who would not be a man, remembering the injustice which was done him in the judgment about the arms. The next was Agamemnon, who took the life of an eagle, because, like Ajax, he hated human nature by reason of his sufferings. About the middle came the lot of Atalanta. She, seeing the great fame of an athlete, was unable to resist the temptation, and after her there followed the soul of Epeus, the son of Panopeus, passing into the nature of a woman cunning in the arts, and far away, among the last who chose, the soul of the jester Thersites was putting on the form of a monkey. There came also the soul of Odysseus, having yet to make a choice, and his lot happened to be the last of them all. Now, the recollection of former toils had disenchanted him of ambition, and he went about for a considerable time in search of the life of a private man who had no cares. He had some difficulty in finding this, which was lying about and had been neglected by everybody else, and when he saw it he said that he would have done the same had his lot been first instead of last, and that he was delighted to have it. And not only did men pass into animals, but I must also mention that there were animals, tame and wild, who changed into one another and into corresponding human natures, the good into the gentle and the evil into the savage, in all sorts of combinations. All the souls had now chosen their lives, and they went in the order of their choice to Lachesis, who sent with them the genius whom they had severally chosen, to be the guardian of their lives and the fulfiller of the choice. This genius led the souls first to Clotho, and drew them within the revolution of the spindle impelled by her hand, thus ratifying the destiny of each, and then, when they were fastened to this, carried them to Atropos, who spun the threads and made them irreversible, whence, without turning round, they passed beneath the throne of necessity, and when they had all passed, they marched on in a scorching heat to the plain of forgetfulness, which was a barren waste destitute of trees and verdure and then, towards evening, they encamped by the river of unmindfulness, whose water no vessel could hold. Of this they were all obliged to drink a certain quantity, and those who were not saved by wisdom drank more than was necessary, and each one, as he drank, forgot all things. Now, after they had gone to rest, about the middle of the night there was a thunderstorm and earthquake, and then, in an instant, they were driven upwards in all manner of ways to their birth, like stars shooting. He himself was hindered from drinking the water, but in what manner or by what means he returned to the body he could not say. Only, in the morning, awakening suddenly, he found himself lying on the pyre. And thus, Glaucon, the tale has been saved, and has not perished, and will save us, if we are obedient to the word spoken and we shall pass safely over the river of forgetfulness, and our soul will not be defiled. Wherefore, 
My counsel is that we hold fast ever to the heavenly way, and follow after justice and virtue always, considering that the soul is immortal, and able to endure every sort of good and every sort of evil. Thus shall we live dear to one another and to the gods, both while remaining here, and when, like conquerors in the games who go round to gather gifts, we receive our reward. And it shall be well with us, both in this life and in the pilgrimage of a thousand years which we have been describing. End of the Republic